Hi, you're listening to Stefan Libera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we're talking about Bitcoin privacy for beginners. So Lily joins me to talk about this, and she's been posting a lot of Bitcoin privacy-related content for some time, so I thought it was time to get an episode that is targeted and aimed for beginners to understand some of the key concepts around Bitcoin privacy. So we talk about KYC coins versus non-KYC coins. What are some of the trade-offs? How do we acquire non-KYC coins? And then once we've acquired those coins, how do we actually stay private through the life cycle of using those coins? And we also talk about some other topical concepts, such as Bitcoin in the context of taking donations, the Canadian trucker Bitcoin example, as well as some of the recent controversy around Wasabi and ZK Snacks. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. Now with Swan, there's Swan Private. This is a special service line available for high net worth investors and companies who want that one-on-one advisory service. Swan Private was launched because we talked to so many people that had issues with the major exchanges. They had their accounts locked, customer service couldn't help them, some of them couldn't onboard their entity accounts. But with Swan Private, you get expert guidance on choosing the right custody option for your Bitcoin, and you just get that additional handholding and guidance along the pathway. So if you're interested to sign up for this, go to swanprivate.com. And if you're interested in borrowing against your coins and you need some fiat liquidity, or if you want to earn some extra returns, you've got to check out Lend by HODL HODL. So this is a platform where you can use peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending and multi-signature to do these deals. And so you can sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stable coins without any verification. You deal directly with other people and the users control collateral together throughout the whole deal. All the interest is paid up at the end. Now, if you have stable coins, you can lend them out and earn high returns. This is essentially issuing an over-collateralized loan with the full interest guaranteed. So with Lend at HODL HODL, you can lend and borrow stable coins on your terms at your desired interest rates. So go and check it out. The website is lend.hodlhodl.com. Brains are a Bitcoin company through and through, and they are working on some of the most unique and cutting-edge projects in the mining industry. They've got Brains OS Plus. This is firmware for your ASIC machine. So think of this like aftermarket or custom firmware that you can install on your ASIC miner. And the main feature is that it has auto-tuning, so you can optimize your miner performance and get more hash rate for your electricity bill. So if you use Brains OS Plus and then also point your hash rate towards Slush Pool, also operated by Brains, you get a 0% pool fee. So that's a really cool benefit. And you are also helping push forward adoption of Stratum V2, which is the next generation Bitcoin mining protocol. And it's being driven forward by the team over at Brains. So that website is brains.com. That's Brains with two eyes. And now onto the show with Lily. Lily, welcome to the show. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's great to chat with you. And uh, I know you're very focused on uh, Bitcoin privacy and a bunch of these topics. Uh, So I wanted to get you on and chat about a bunch of these things. Uh, But uh, yeah, maybe just give us a little bit of an overview. Who are you? What was a little bit of your journey of uh, getting down this Bitcoin and Bitcoin privacy rabbit hole? Yeah, of course. So I actually started buying Bitcoin um, end of 2018. I came in from the traditional finance space. So prior to working in Bitcoin, I was an investment banker at JP Morgan. And then I moved to uh, a UBS bank where I managed uh, client portfolios for the ultra high net worth. 
And while I was there, um, I was looking for a way to hedge my clients' equity positions. So end of 2018 comes and Jerome Powell comes on on television and he says, uh, we're going to raise rates. We're going to raise rates a quarter of a percentage point. That uh, spooked the market. But what really spooked the market was when he said, we are far from terminal, meaning, you know, a lot more rate hikes are planned. So get prepared. Markets uh, took a dive. We almost went into bear market territory. Bonds dived. Uh, paper gold do- uh, like dove as well. And you know, I the only thing that was working was the option strategies that I had put in place in these portfolios. And the problem with that is the option strategies are very expensive. So my boss at the time he said, you know, I want you to find something else. This is working, but it's expensive and it's uh, taking a lot of your time. So I started doing some research and I found Bitcoin. Previously, I had experience with crypto back in 2018, like early 2018. I was uh, not looking at Bitcoin. I was looking at these other coins, uh, trying to make money. Kind of got wrecked, and then I dismissed it completely. So I came across this article again, and it was talking about you know Bitcoin as a hedge uh, against inflation, and it was talking about uh, the the growth of the Bitcoin uh, hash rate and like how the network was so resilient. So I took that, I ran with it, I ran like stat analysis on it. And I saw that the correlation uh, between Bitcoin and equities at the time was 0.6. That makes it a great candidate for a hedge mathematically. So I uh, put together a presentation and I pitched this to my team. I kind of wish I could take that back because I got so much backlash um, for bringing it up. Um, My boss at the time said, you know, it makes sense, but... If you do this, you're going to be a liability for us and you're going to be a liability for the clients. I don't want you bringing this up. And then he's, I, I thought, okay, well, we could introduce it like through Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. That's what that's what was like on the market back then. We couldn't buy physical Bitcoin. He's like, I don't care. I don't want to see this uh, proposal like ever again. So I tabled it and I started going down the rabbit hole from there. I started buying Bitcoin on my own. Like every week I would buy it. Uh, I did the whole like bulk purchase and DCA and all that. I didn't care too much about privacy at the time. I didn't really understand Bitcoin as this like freedom money. I just thought, okay, it's just another asset. This is a hedge. It's a way to protect my my stocks. So I'm just going to buy it. It wasn't until 2020 where I realized, okay, Bitcoin is money. Bitcoin is protection against like authoritarian governments. It's It really is like the only asset that you can take custody of and it's the only asset that is truly censorship resistant. So from there, I started going down the privacy rabbit hole. I started learning about CoinJoin. It was actually your podcast was the first Bitcoin podcast that I like ever listened to. Oh, great. I started learning about what a node was. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy like to be on right now. But then I saw like, okay, now I know what Bitcoin is. There's no way I can continue to buy this on a centralized exchange. Like, if, if it is what we say it is, if it is what's what it is in the white paper, it's P2P, censorship resistant money, it's protection against the state. How can it be protection if we're going through their on-ramp, you know, like we're handing them our information. And even if we do take custody of it, they know uh, what time we bought, at what price, at what date, like the amount. It's like we're, we're exposing ourselves and we're taking this asset that's supposed to be uh, censorship resistant and we're dollarizing it we're, we're putting it in in the same category essentially as, as stocks and bonds so it was then i was 
trying to find, okay, let's find out ways to buy non-KYC. So I started buying non-KYC. I started looking into mining. You know, at the time, there was barely any resources out there talking about non-KYC, talking about mining. The The only mining uh, talk like on mainstream was, you know, don't do it. It's not profitable. Um, it's too hard. Like, you're going to get scammed. It's complicated. I just like, it was so hard to break out of that. And like when I first started buying non-KYC and going down the mining rabbit hole, I actually didn't want to. Like I, I like didn't have a desire to do it, but I felt that it was necessary. Like once you see like the truth and once you see what's happening around you, you kind of have to, re- you have to react and you just have to take that step, even if it's uncomfortable. And, and now I'm so glad I took it because seeing all the news that's coming out, I don't have to scramble to learn, you know, how to use Bitcoin privately or how to acquire it. Like I took that step a, a little bit ahead of the curve. So I'm just glad I, I did it. And I think anyone like they can do it, like they can start. It's not impossible. And it's never too late to start caring about your privacy. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I think that's a, a great uh, walkthrough there. Of What is for many people, it's a common journey, I think. Uh, everyone has different views around uh, KYC and how how much they're willing to tolerate it, right? And of course, uh, I, I, I'm more in that camp of I think I think you it, you can still have a foot in both worlds, but I understand, of course, there is the the position of the hardcore never KYC uh, gang, and I think it's probably useful for for listeners to hear that spoken out. Like, what are some of the trade offs of purchasing or acquiring or mining non KYC as opposed to KYC? So, from your point of view, how would you spell out some of those differences? Yeah. So the way I look at it is. Like, I think it's totally fine to have two stacks, one KYC and one non-KYC. I I personally have two stacks. We are still like in a dollarized economy and we still interact with a fiat system. So I, I say like you can use KYC Bitcoin as an investment. You can buy it as like a liquid emergency fund. Like if you know you're going to be buying a house within two years, that's a big purchase. You want to put your money into something that will appreciate. So by the time you're ready to make that big purchase, uh, your inflation, um, your inflation protected and like you have more money to make that purchase. So I say, okay, use KYC uh, Bitcoin as a liquid emergency fund. You can use it as collateral for loans and you can use it like on the balance sheet of your business. Uh, You're not going to be able to use uh, non-KYC Bitcoin as, as loan collateral. Like usually they want records of like where it came from. There are platforms where you could potentially get a loan with non-KYC, but if you're a registered entity like an LLC or a business, I think you have to play within the rules. You have to keep it very clean. You don't want to give yourself a headache and a mess, you know, when it comes time to maybe we're going to audit you. So I think there's a lot of value in having a KYC stack. Non-KYC is for people who want to transact uh, privately, for people who want that real protection against the government and potential like hostile regulations. It's always good to hedge yourself and have like that secret stash of money. Uh, Back then it was gold like in your house in a safe. You know, you bought it with cash. No one knew you had it. Now we're in modern day and we have something better. So get that like non-KYC Bitcoin um, and you keep it like on a wallet in your home. And that's like your real protection just in case you have to, you're locked out of your fiat bank account and you need to transact just in case you have to like flee a bad situation, just in case your country ends up in war. Like I'm sure the Ukrainians didn't expect, you know, that to happen to them. So it's important to have that stash and like have that separation. Absolutely. And so I think 
I think you, you've put it quite well there that you can see a case there for, for having some in each world, but as long as you understand the trade-offs of what decisions you're making. And so let's spell out some of those trade-offs. Like, I guess maybe let me put a few ideas out there. So as an example, in the KYC world, you're generally paying less of a premium to acquire it and you are potentially you might be able to purchase more than you otherwise would have depending on which country or which city or town you're in right uh, and it might be in some ways more convenient now that's that's kind of the the kyc side now the non-kyc side the probably the benefit then is less people know you have it it's not on a recorded you know it's the institution who gave you the kyc coins well that doesn't exist now and now it's just a counterparty who knows And so that's less potential people. It's less able to be seized by the government or requested or subpoenaed by a government or potentially even hackers. Um, If that data were to leak, then they might know your name. They might know your address, your phone number, your email, etc. So I think those are a few of the different trade-offs. Are there any others that you want to spell out for people? Yeah, I think that's those are the main trade-offs, you know, like having to pay the premium. Uh, I think another thing to note is liquidation. It's harder to liquidate non-KYC Bitcoin. Uh, Ideally, you want to liquidate it the way that you got it, like through a decentralized exchange like BISC uh, with another person um, in a P2P market or some kind of like P2P group. Or you can even go to a Bitcoin ATM and liquidate it that way. Some ATMs go both ways. You can put in Bitcoin and get cash back. So if you're, yeah, if you're trying to make a big purchase in the future going through that liquidation process right now unfortunately is still very complicated you know a lot of these decentralized exchanges they don't have high liquidity so you're going to have to do multiple transactions to get back to that huge amount of fiat that you put in right but i do want to note too is yeah yeah so i do want to note too about the premiums like there are ways to like get around that uh one of them is mining bitcoin so when you mine bitcoin you're essentially mining it uh, below spot, depending on your electricity rate. So you're getting non-KYC Bitcoin at a discount. Uh, you're mining it at home, so you don't have to you know, deal with BISC. You don't have to drive and go to an ATM. Another thing, too, is if you're very patient, you can go on these decentralized exchanges and place your own orders. You can place your orders around like 1% to 2% above spot. And a lot of times they will actually fill. A lot of people, they just go in and take an order, but place an order, leave it there for a couple of days. I guarantee you that it will fill. One thing I like to do personally too with respect to ATMs is you can go to an ATM and you don't have to say, okay, like the limit is $800 a day per number. There's a way to get around that. Um, you can use something like text verified and you can spin up a lot of non uh non-KYC phone numbers, you can spin up, say, five numbers, and you can run those transactions all on the same day. That creates that um, smash buy effect that you would get, like, if you went through a Coinbase or a Kraken or something like that. Right. And so there's different ways to go about that. And depending on the different platforms, so as listeners know, HODL HODL is one of my sponsors. So that is also an option if you uh, post up an offer and you can then use that to trade um, USD or you, you, or, or um, other, you know, other fiat, basically. And so th- there are a few of the different angles. And also, I think it's interesting because in some parts of the world, there is this, it's seen like this non-KYC premium. But in other parts of the world, it might be more like it's not really a KYC premium. It's more just like maker-taker premium, as in the maker is the one who is providing both sides, the bid and the ask, as in they've got their spread. And then if you're the taker, you're the person taking that offer, then you're the one paying the premium. 
So I think it's interesting that in different parts yeah. of the world it can operate like that. So, for example, in parts of the world where there's not capital gains tax, it's it might be seen a bit more in that in that way. Um, so it's just an interesting thing I've I've noticed just in my travels around the world as well. Yeah. So bringing it back to the I guess the mining method, I guess that's also another reason where some individuals would say, okay, look, I'm I'm treating it like I'm taking a a little bit of a hit in terms of the electricity cost, but I'm treating it like, okay, I'm okay with that premium because I'm getting some non-KYC coin. So I think that's probably another angle that some people are thinking about it, right? Yeah, definitely. And it depends on their electricity costs. Like some people, they can actually mine um, and make good money, like they're not losing money. But regardless, if you're holding that mine Bitcoin for at least the full cycle, like you're going to come out and you're going to have a lot more profits uh, than somebody who's stacking through a KYC exchange. I think one thing that's important to note too, is if you're mining and you're in the US, you're eligible for something called a power purchase agreement. So that means that if you're using more electricity, you go to your uh, electrical service provider and you ask them, say, I want to increase uh, my electrical use, like what kind of discount can you give me? A lot of times they'll lower your rate per kilowatt hour and you don't have to tell them like what you're using the electricity for like you just they want you to use electricity so they will give you a discount for uh stepping up that usage yeah that's that's a good point i think a lot of people might not have considered so yeah certainly that's out there and then i guess so we've spoken a little bit about non-kyc methods of acquiring so in some cases uh, as you said there are certain thresholds you might be able to stay below those thresholds in other cases, you might be mining. In other cases, you, you might be earning. So that's like another way that you could take your existing service or product and just sell that for Bitcoin if you're able to find somebody who wants to buy it. Yeah. I mean, what's nice too about earning is like now there's a lot of sites that you can use. Like people post jobs and say, I want um, somebody to design a website for me and I'm going to pay them in Bitcoin. One that I really like is the, the Jobs for Bitcoin subreddit. Um, there's also a really cool site called Freelance for Coins. So th there are marketplaces that exist where you can connect with people who want to pay in Bitcoin. And a lot of times, like these people who are seeking these services or seeking to provide these services, they are in parts of the world where their currency is just not good or their job market is really shitty. So they have to find other ways to, to earn income. It's uh, It's really cool. Like, I think everyone has a skill that they can monetize and sell for Bitcoin. Absolutely. And so... Then we've spoken a little bit about using non-KYC acquisition. What does it look like to then actually retain our privacy in our Bitcoin usage? And I know this is an area where you've done a lot of uh, journey. You've gone down this rabbit hole quite a bit. So I think you'll have some interesting insights to share for listeners who are maybe newer to this, uh, this non-KYC world. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I approach uh, Bitcoin privacy is it's kind of like five, uh, five key areas. The first obviously being acquiring Bitcoin privately. Um, number two would be like how you store your Bitcoin. Um, you don't want to store it. You don't want to store huge amounts like on a hot wallet. Uh, you want to store most of your uh, funds offline in like a cold storage wallet. Another thing to consider too is coin management. Like if you buy a non-KYC coin, you have KYC coins in a wallet. The last thing you want to do is send your non-KYC coins to that wallet that has the KYC coins. Because what you're doing there is you're negating all the hard work that you did to get those coins. And now they are what we call like tainted. So my thing is like choose a wallet that has coin control and labeling. Coin control meaning you choose which UTXOs are spent in a transaction. And then labeling, you can tag the UTXOs and say, okay, I got this from 
mining or this one came from ATM, this one came from Coinbase or, or wherever. Some really good tools for that are Samurai Wallet, uh, Blue Wallet has this and then Sparrow Wallet, they all have coin control and labeling. Another thing like people need to look at is if you really want to transact privately, you need to use your own node. You know, when you're setting up a node, there's a lot of things to consider, like the cost of the node, uh, which wallets are compatible with that node, um, your own technical ability, like how much do you know and how much of a technical technological uh, leap do you want to go through? And then also like the community support of that node project. For beginners, definitely I would recommend like a plug and play like node setup, uh, something easy, like you can use like the Ron and Dojo Tonto plug and play or the Umbral node. They're both really great uh, for new people because when you're transacting, every uh, transaction like goes through a node. And if you are not running your own node, you're using someone else's node and you're, you're trusting them uh, with your privacy. Another thing to consider too is coin joining. So coin joining is basically like you're breaking the links between that Bitcoin uh, that you have in its past. I think you should always uh, coin join if you're like sending out Bitcoin to somebody. It doesn't matter if you're transacting, uh, it's a, if it's an innocent transaction or not, like you should be a coin joining that Bitcoin. And, you know, this can be done like with Samurai Wallet or with Sparrow and Desktop. Another thing too to note is it's okay, I guess, you know, to coin join without a node, but you have to understand that trade-offs is you are sending your your XPub information um, to that uh, coin join uh, coordinator. If you want to avoid that, you should be running uh, your own node. So with Sparrow, that kind of that looks like running Bitcoin, your instance of Bitcoin Core, like while you're using Whirlpool. And with Samurai, that would be like running your own dojo. You can run a dojo um, that that's like included in a lot of these node packages. Uh, it's included in Umbral. It's included in my node. Um, you can run a Ronin Dojo plug and play. Like that's already included. It's it's really not like a huge like setup hurdle. Excellent. And so, I think that's a good point for people who are new to consider is that distinction between this idea of one is holding your keys and then the other part is running your own Bitcoin node. So, just for anyone who's new, could you just explain that part again, just simply? What what what's the holding your keys part and what's the running your own Bitcoin node part? Yeah, so obviously number one step for privacy is holding your own keys. Like you want to um, have that Bitcoin in your possession. You don't want to keep it uh, with with a custodian or or somebody else. And then that distinction between you know how much risk are you willing to tolerate? If you're holding your own uh, keys in like a hot wallet, know that that is uh, connected to the internet. And you know basic security says that any uh, software that you're running on an internet connected device is only as secure as the device itself. So you have to make sure that your actual device is, is secure and free of malware, even if that software is you know a strong privacy focused software. It's only as secure as the device that you are running it on. And then the other part, of course, is long term storage. Um, using something like a cold wallet holding your keys offline so that is like away from hackers and like actually secure because if you are working like you're putting in all this time to get non-kyc bitcoin you want to protect it if you're holding a lot of funds you want to keep those funds offline running a node is not it's more for people who like want to transact and who are transacting pretty regularly i mean you can run a node as a hodler to support the network but it's not going to benefit you with respect to your privacy if you're not using it it's just another piece of technology so I think, you know, running a node while you're transacting is, is extremely important because you want to know exactly like, you know, you want to verify your own transactions. You don't want to rely on somebody else. And there's actually a lot of reports too that show that chain analysis and like these bad actors, like they run nodes and you never know like what, uh, what node your transaction is being passed through if you're not running your own. 
Right. And so that's an interesting point as well, because there is in the broader ecosystem, there are various elements of surveillance going on. And as you rightly pointed out, it's this is like a known thing where basically these chain surveillance firms would run some of the public Electrum servers. And so this would basically be the means by which people who are unsuspecting users of the network would think, you know, I, who, people don't know about my transactions, but actually their server knows about it. And so this is like taking it to that next level. Now, to be clear for listeners who, if you're new, just understand that some software use kind of relatively safer default. So as an example, Sparrow has a kind of semi-trusted list of Electrum servers who are providing uh, the info there. So I think it's like Blockstream and MZ and a few a few other people out there. Uh, but obviously, as you're saying, the idea is you might graduate up to running your own software, either your own Bitcoin call or running your own Electrum server using the likes of you know, Ronam Dojo or Umbral and so on. Uh, and so I think those are a few points to think about. And then it's it's a life cycle, isn't it, right? Like it's not just kind of, it's like, don't just think, oh, it's, it's just the stacking of the coins. It's also whenever you're spending those coins, you have to think about the privacy implications of that, right? And so how how do we best maintain our privacy through the life cycle of our acquiring and spending uh, of coins? Yeah, so the best thing really is you, know, you acquire your coins is to manage uh, those like UTXOs, that Bitcoin, make sure that you're labeling everything, you know, where it's coming from, keeping track, like don't combine non-KYC and KYC coins in a spend. Um, always coin join uh, before you're spending. And what I really like too is, you know, in the Samurai wallet, for example, like there is these post-mix spending tools. So that kind of make that makes sure that you are retaining that privacy that you got from the coin join. It takes a lot of that uh, user error out when you're transacting. So I definitely recommend, you know, people to use those tools. Yeah. And so for listeners who maybe you're struggling to follow along, the idea here is that there are algorithms built in into the way that those coins are spent. And in so this algorithm is there in Samurai Wallet and it's also there in Sparrow Wallet also as an option. So as an example, there's Stonewall. And so it'll use these algorithms in a way to help obfuscate or mask your behavior on chain. And so the general principle or the general theory here is that you might you might earn some coins and then you might run them through a coin join, through Whirlpool as an example. And then after you've done Whirlpool, then when you're going to spend, that's where you use these what's called post-mix spend tools. And so Stonewall is the obvious or the main example, but there are other post-mix tools that can be applied and used, right? Yeah, definitely. And I do want to note that it's more important to go through that process for if you're spending a KYC coins versus a non-KYC coins. Like you don't want to be spending directly out of an exchange, for example. It's important because we saw like what happens if certain transactions get flagged, certain addresses get blacklisted, like with the Canadian truckers. They were able to trace these people because what they did was they donated directly from their exchange wallet. So made them very easy to to track. You always want to make sure you get it into a non-custodial wallet first and coin join it before uh, sending out any KYC Bitcoin. Back to the show in a moment. Are you looking for an easy way to get started with Bitcoin mining? Compass Mining is the world's first and largest online marketplace for Bitcoin mining hardware, hosting, and ASIC reselling. Bitcoin mining is getting bigger and bigger, and so is Compass Mining. Compass is adding over 280 megawatts worth of hosting capacity this year alone. So with Compass, you can go and select a new machine. If you're in the US, you can have that machine shipped to your home or 
if you want to use a hosted facility that has been vetted by the Compass team, that's also an option available to you. So with Compass, anyone can mine Bitcoin. Go and check out the range of miners available on their website, as well as their numerous forms of content educating about Bitcoin mining. That's compassmining.io. Now with Bitcoin security, it's important to remove single points of failure in our setup. And with Unchained Capital, you can use a multi-signature vault to give yourself that peace of mind. You can bring two hardware wallets and set this up on the Unchained.com platform yourself and have Unchained as the co-signer holding the third key. And if you need assistance, they've got a concierge onboarding program. So with this concierge program, you can pay upfront, have some hardware wallets shipped to you if you need them, and then have a call to teach you how to do this, even if you've never held your private keys before. Unchained also has some ongoing support and education attached with this, so you don't have to worry that you're going to be totally out on out there on your own. So go to unchained.com, select the concierge onboarding program, and use the code Levera for a discount. And if it's Bitcoin hardware you're looking for, coinkite.com has what you need. They offer the cold card, which is my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, and you can use this to store your coins as well as keep your coins offline by using the micro SD card to move that information back and forth between the calculator sized device and your computer, the laptop or PC that you're running Sparrow or Spectre or Electrum or other wallets. Over at CoinKite, they've also got a range of other material that you can buy, such as the Open Dime or the Metal Seed backups for your 24 seed words, which is called the Seed Plate. And they've got a range of other bits and pieces that you can purchase to use alongside your cold card. Now that site is CoinKite.com. Back to the show. Yeah, that's a great point to put. And so I think it's important for listeners to understand the difference between an account and a wallet. So accounts are what you have on an exchange. But a wallet is the one where you hold the private key. So that's like Samurai Wallet or Sparrow Wallet or using a hardware wallet. And so what you want to do is make sure you are withdrawing out of that account on the exchange into your own wallet. And that's an important point for people to understand. Uh, And then, of course, think a little bit carefully about the privacy implications of when you spend and what you're spending. And so as you you were saying, Lily, there are certain tools that we can use to retain our privacy through the life cycle of our Bitcoin use. So I think those are important points to understand, especially for new users and new Bitcoiners. Uh, So I'm curious as well, while we're here talking about the Canadian truckers, do you have any thoughts on how that went down and what, what could have been done? What, well, firstly, did, did you, do you have any, first of all, thoughts on, you know, how that was executed and whether there are things that should have been done uh, to improve that? So with respect to actually uh, collecting Bitcoin donations and passing them out to the truckers or with respect to the situation and, and what happened? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, so my first thoughts on this was this situation was a great uh, advertisement for Bitcoin and highlighted the importance of, of censorship resistance and being able to transact freely. But it also showed some of Bitcoin's flaws. You know, the blockchain is open and auditable. For anyone to look at, anyone with a block explorer can, you know, see where transactions are going and see what's going on. This was this highlights the important for like strong privacy practices. A lot of people were spending their Bitcoin uh, from exchanges directly and sending it to the truckers, which was wrong. But I do think there should have been more education um, to the truckers about like what Bitcoin is and like how they should be using it. Uh, I saw some videos uh, that came out from Canada and they were 
giving Bitcoin to truckers and they were filming them. I thought that was like a huge blunder, like that just destroys their privacy right there. I don't think it's enough to be able to say, okay, we raise all this money, we pass it out. We need to show them like how to actually use it and convert it to goods and services. Like there wasn't, I feel like that was the missing piece. Like there wasn't um, any education on, okay, like this is how you use a decentralized exchange to cash out of that Bitcoin. It's a, it's a learning process, you know, like I just, um, I felt like it could have been handled a lot better. I do think it was a good initiative um, with respect to the people who participated, but it, the, the execution was where the problems were. Right. And I think it's, a combination of things so historically there has been this line of thought or school of thought of oh look it's transparent so let's let's try to amp that up let's em- emphasize that oh look see we're all publicly donating and you know you can sort of understand a bit of an argument around it helps that other people see those donations going so maybe that might help get more donations but what's the downside it means if everybody's donating to the same address or to the same fundraiser it becomes very transparent unless the users know how to then coin join and be private after after the fact and in the case where it's a very public donation address and you can see exactly this is where the money went i can understand this there's conflicting arguments here because on one side it's like oh the transparency for the donators they should get to see where their money went and then the other angle is more the privacy angle it's like no actually we should just not we should be veering away from this idea of transparency on the blockchain although yes if you use it wrong it is very transparent that we should just be veering away from that idea altogether and we should instead be just saying look make the donation and let you know let them be private after the fact yeah i definitely agree like when you're collecting donations, I, I know that a static Bitcoin address is very convenient. It's easy for people to you know plug that in and send money. But when you have a government that was openly hostile towards the people who are receiving the donations and was openly hostile towards the people who were actually donating, they need to find a way to collect those donations, whether that be you know through like a PNM uh, donation or a BTC pay server to collect the donations. Like they, they need to be responsible for, for collecting that on behalf of the people who are going to receive it. Because the last thing you want is, is doing more harm than good, where these users who receive these donations or gave these donations, they get found out. And then their fiat bank accounts, traditional bank accounts get frozen and they get locked out. There was reports of people saying they couldn't buy groceries, they couldn't put gas because they didn't have cash on hand and their accounts were frozen. Right. And as you rightly pointed out, it's the authorities in this case took it to a level far beyond what had happened previously right we had heard of cancelings before and things like this but this was in the past historically it was things like politically uh political reasons to shut down let's say a a drug business or a gun business or a porn business or something like that whereas in this case it was everyday canadians who were having their normal bank accounts and normal accounts shut down or stopped and so the powers the fiat uh, world has uh, taken it to another level. And I think it also means that Bitcoiners have to take it to the next level as well in terms of execution and uh, the ability to educate quickly and make Bitcoin practically usable for people. I believe it can be used practically and it it could have been, but things like static address reuse or uh, this sort of overly transparent culture of Bitcoin usage might be holding us back um, and so maybe this is a good point for you just to explain for people who don't know what is a Paynim uh, and how does it work for people who, who want to do this kind of thing in the future. Yeah, so a Paynim is basically like 
a way to uh, transact and send and receive money without address reuse. Like everything is managed um, like directly and you can like add people's like PNMs and send money to them. Basically like a reusable payment code. All of the stuff happens behind the scenes of like changing out the addresses and um, all that. But I think it's really valuable because like some people say, oh, it's like hard to like get into. It's, it's, it's really not when the wallet is doing it automatically. And I think that uh, BIP47 or PayNM should be integrated into every wallet. Like this is just another way to reduce that, that friction for the users and giving them that privacy by default so they don't have to be technical to actually um, transact. So I think, you know, if you're if you're new to Bitcoin, this is how you should be transacting. You should be transacting with, with PayNMs. That way you don't have to remember, okay, don't reuse addresses and a lot of uh, charities now, they're actually taking um, smaller charities. They're taking donations like via PNMs versus, you know, a static address. Got it. And so in this case, if you are raising funds, whether you are in a adversarial environment and you don't want to dox the amount of donations you're receiving or you want to make it easy for other people to donate to you, then this is an example. Now, of course... I think the, there are various knocks that are out there against PayNIMS and you, this kind of thing, although I'm, I'm still supportive of them personally, and I have been for a while. Uh, I think the main knock currently is just that there's not as many wallets that support it. And so from the point of view of a person who's out there asking for donations or trying to do commerce in that example, they might see it like, oh, I want to use things that are more, compat- that are more compatible with lots of wallets. But that said, we have uh, Samurai and Sparrow currently who have it. Uh, and my hope is we see more wallets uh, that implement this as a feature, at least, and put it out there for people who want it. Um, and it. And it's not just donations as well. I think it's important that you could, as an example, have a trading partner or somebody who, as an example, you could have an employee. You, if you if you are paying an employee and you just have you do it yeah. all with paynims, every time you pay them, you can just say, "Hey, I just made the payment to your paynim. Boom, you received it." And there's no, there was no need for each person or one person to give the other an address to pay into. Yeah, no, I think there's so many, like there's so many use cases, and I think more wallets will follow suit and implement it. Like now that the the use case is uh, even stronger after the trucker situation and after the situation in, in, in Russia, when we saw, you know, Coinbase was also blacklisting some of their addresses for these users. Um, I think we'll see more of it. You know, we have to follow. And, and, and innovate on what the users want and what will actually benefit them. I, I don't see like much of a reason that wallets shouldn't offer this. It's not something that is mandatory. The users can choose whether or not they want to use PNMs, but they should have the option. Got it. Uh, and so just more broadly around privacy tools and techniques, even just aside from Bitcoin, do you have any tips uh, or uh, pieces of software or tools that you think people should be thinking about, they should know about? Yeah, so I actually like put all of my Bitcoin stuff on a like a Bitcoin uh, like a privacy dedicated phone. So what I use is I use something called the Calyx OS uh, operating system. And with that operating system, what it does is it takes all of the the Google uh, software and trackerware um, on Android and it removes that and it keeps the the functionality. I like to use uh, my Bitcoin on there because like we mentioned earlier, yeah, the software that you use is only as secure as the device you're using it on. Um, another thing too is when you're using a Bitcoin wallet, you want to use a wallet that connects to Tor by default. When you connect to Tor, like all your activity is like obscured and it's it's hidden from the the software maker. 
Personally, if the wallet doesn't connect to Tor automatically, I wouldn't use it if you're a privacy conscious uh, user. So something like Samurai Wallet or Sparrow Wallet, they connect to Tor automatically. I definitely recommend uh, people looking into that and using it. Another thing too is if you're looking at like trying to protect your private data, only use apps that are like open source or like on the Asteroid store. So what I like to, it's like a lot to think about, right? Like if you're taking notes, for example, on Apple Notepad, that stuff's not encrypted and people can see it. Um, if you're like taking notes about Bitcoin, writing down an address, you want to put it in something like a standard notes and encrypt those notes. Another thing I like to use too is, you know, when we copy addresses to our clipboards, it gets retained there and other apps can access the clipboard and see that information. The user should clear that after like every transaction. So I use something called a clipboard cleaner, like that's exactly what it's called. And you can get it on the Asteroid store. It's pretty simple. You open it, say, okay, I want to clear the clipboard that gets cleared out. Um, obviously, uh, you want like a good uh, hardware wallet to go with it. I use the foundation passport to secure all my funds. And then for like, you want a good node package. There's a lot of good offerings out there, but I use the Ronin Dojo node to coin join all of my Bitcoin. That's kind of like my sovereign stack. The sovereign stack should be a really good um, hot wallet that has privacy tools built in that does connect to Tor. Um, good supporting apps, um, a strong uh, mobile OS to keep those apps running on, a good node, and then a, a really good uh, privacy-focused uh, cold storage wallet. Not all cold storage is created equally. I really would discourage the use of, of cold wallets that connect directly to the computer uh, if you want to be like this like privacy uh, power user. Um, and just while we're on that topic around hardware wallets or cold, like cold, whether you're using a hardware wallet or a cold wallet, how do you, how would you advise a new coiner when they're thinking about, let's say, having a smaller amount on their spending wallet, let's say, and then uh, that larger amount on their hardware wallet or cold storage setup? How should they think about that? Yeah, so the same, like you have to look at the same things that you look at, like when you're evaluating node packages, you want to look at like the cost of the hardware, um, the functionality of the hardware, the ease of use of it. Uh, can you actually create encrypted backups? Like how are you going to back up your seed? That kind of thing. I wouldn't go for something that is, as a new user, that is extremely like technical and has a lot of friction um, associated with it. Like I would try to opt for something that is you know, easier to use, but doesn't compromise on, on their security. Uh, definitely, like when you're setting up a hardware wallet, uh, regardless of where you get it from and who's making it, like you need to test it with smaller amounts. So never just say, okay, I'm going to send, you know, my whole stack to this hardware wallet or 90% of my stack in one go. You want to test it with small amounts first, test it with small amounts, and then test your backups before like sending a lot of money. Send a small amount, test that backup, see if you can restore your wallet from the seed. And if that like works then you're good to go and you can send like all larger amounts to that wallet. Hardware wallets are for long-term storage. They're not really for like day-to-day -day spending, right? Like you um, you just want to store your, your long-term funds there. So definitely like consider your technical aptitude. Uh, make sure you test your backups and like choose something that is you know, on your level, like don't, don't like exhaust yourself and say, okay, I want to, you know, test like all these wallets, like make sure that the provider that you choose has like good support uh, documentation for you, like good tutorials, stuff for you to reference and like a good community around it because like you want that support as a new user. Yeah. Yeah. All good tips there. Um, and so it, it just behooves all of us to think carefully about what we're doing and making sure most of our stuff is in harder to access cold storage and 
keeping a smaller amount in that day-to-day spending. And you know, for some for some people, they might have different hardware wallets. One that they're keeping as their deep cold, and then one as kind of like a warm hardware wallet, and then maybe a small amount on the phone just for that day-to-day uh, or yeah, let's say if they're going to a Bitcoin event or a conference and they want to be able to spend and receive and you know uh, get get amongst it in that way. And I think what another area that's quite topical at the moment is all the well while we're in this whole realm of privacy and what's going on with Wasabi and this whole uh, zk snacks, uh, which is the company behind Wasabi Wallet. So I'm curious, Lily, do you have any uh, thoughts on what has gone down there? Or actually, if you could just first give a bit of an overview from your point of view, what have you seen there? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, This new decision that they said, you know, we're going to blacklist UTXOs, it kind of caught a lot of users by surprise. My view is the idea of blacklisting UTXOs is an attack on Bitcoin fungibility. And for people who don't like know what fungibility is, like fungibility is basically like how interchangeable are the parts of um, the money supply and how indistinguishable are they from each other? So basically, if you're moving to mark some coins as tainted and unusable, that uh, destroys fungibility because you're separating uh, the parts from each other. You're saying like this is this is a good piece of the money supply and this is a bad piece of the money supply. Like this is exactly what we're trying to avoid by using Bitcoin. We're trying to avoid censorship. So what what Wasabi did was they said, okay, we're going to censor users in the same way that GoFundMe said, we're going to censor users. You can use our service only if you're using it for this purpose. And I get it, like maybe they had good intentions, but the way I see it is, this is just the beginning. You know, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Wasabi has essentially become a uh, a surveillance app. And on top of that, like I'd say, you know, this is the nail in the coffin for them. Um, they had problems in the past. They had uh, problems with address reuse like in their mixes. So when you have deterministic links in the mix, the mix can be unwound and traced back to you. Essentially, that negates all the benefits from a coin join. They had problems in that you could not verify the anonymity set of your mixes. They, you said like, okay, I'm going to get this anonymity set of 50 and I'm going to pay this certain amount for it. Um, there's no way to verify the method of like mixing you know, as opposed to something like Samurai Wallet, the method of calculating the anon set and like the way the mix is done, it is reproducible and verifiable. Um, so that's uh, that's another red flag. Like I just <clears throat> another thing too that we were always all wondering, like okay, like did, were they pressured? Did somebody send them a letter, a cease and desist, some kind of court order to tell them that they need to start blacklisting uh, UTXOs? The answer is clear now. The answer is no. You had. Uh, <clears throat> the lead developer and some of their team give an interview and say, no, we were not pressured by regulators. We are just preempting a potential regulation in the future. So you have a privacy wallet that's coming out and saying, oh, we're going to uh, start complying with non-existent regulation to protect the users or to protect ourselves. It's just, um, it's a very messy. And I don't want to get too much into like the drama of it and the politics but i do encourage everybody who wants to learn more to go you know you can go on twitter you can search wasabi with the tag of my tag and samurai's tag and like no para's tag and see what people have been saying you know about the wallet for years uh, you can see the research reports for yourself you can see the back and forth and, and what was said you can search my thing was search chain analysis 
search it with the names of the Wasabi developers, and you'll see that there was talk of hiring chain analysis and using these chain analysis companies for over three years since 2017 was the first mention of potentially hiring these firms to, to help them manage uh, UTXOs. So I think anyone who went out and did their research wouldn't be surprised by this decision. Right. And I think I, as in my role as well as a podcaster and a person just talking about Bitcoin, I've copped a little bit of flack myself about um, things, you know, uh, there have been times where I've said I, I I would prefer to use Samurai Wallet. And there have been times where I've copped a bit of flack myself, even even for my criticisms of for when I would criticize things that are a bit just strange behavior in terms of things like uh, address reuse and I think architectural flaws in, in the way that the Wasabi wallet was working. Now, it remains to be seen um, what happens with if there is a new coordinator and so on. I personally would avoid, I'm sort of waiting to see what happens there. Um, I've been obviously more in the Samurai uh, user um, um, camp myself, uh, but I, I think it it's a bit concerning to see the use of chain surveillance firms inside what is purportedly a privacy wallet and it does arguably cut against the very ethos of this idea of bitcoin as a as a freedom money uh, i understand there are obviously you know no, no wallet is perfect and no person in this space is perfect we've all got our flaws uh, i just i'm just very confused by what's going on uh, i personally would avoid uh, wasabi myself so I, I think that those are a few comments that i just wanted to share as well just for any listeners curious on my perspective there i guess it's hard to ascribe intention but it, it seems a little bit like a regulatory capture play it's almost like a let's let's try to kowtow or let's try to sort of play along with that narrative in the hopes that the, our masters will give us uh uh will throw us a few scraps at the table or that we won't get banned right and to me, it obviously it's difficult in this space, right? It's difficult to just say, yeah, you should just like tell them nah. But maybe there were arguably unforced errors here too, right? There were errors being made that in terms of the structuring of the business or the way it was, you know, it 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 could be argued there that there were unforced errors there also along the way. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, it's really unfortunate, right? Because I place a premium on honesty. And if you go back and see you know, how these developers were talking about privacy in the past, like you had someone come out, I think it was 2018 or 19, he said, chain analysis, he tagged all the firms, he said, you are my enemy, and I will end you. Two days ago, he came out, same guy, and he said, well, we're not censoring, this is curation, we're curating which users we serve. And that's the right of every entrepreneur, which is a true statement, right? But it's the complete opposite of what he was um, showing himself to be, somebody who is a champion of privacy, who is a champion of anti-censorship. I think, you know, you want to work in this space and you want to advance privacy, you need to understand that you're going to face friction. Uh, if something like what you're building is truly going to uh, decentralize power and give its users the ability to transact privately and outside of the state's control, you're going to face friction. Like people are going to come, they're going to come after you. And I think you had a great point when you said maybe the structure of the company was a poor structure. I mean, they have a, they have a headquarters, right? They have a headquarters that's a known location. A lot of these uh, devs are doxxed. So their uh, full name is out there and they're known. So that creates uh, some vulnerability on their part. But really, like they had no, um, no court order, um, no cease and desist telling them that they need to uh, preempt uh, regulation. Uh, my guess is maybe this is a play to like try to get ahead of other 
coin join providers try to get ahead of their comp- competition in the regulatory space and say, okay, we're going to start doing this. They're going to go and lobby uh, governments for more uh, regulation on coin join to try and kind of like get ahead of their competitors. This is something that is very common in the mining space. You know, Core Scientific has put out a lot of statements saying that, you know, they're pro ESG and they're taking all these steps. They're taking these steps that they weren't asked to take. And I think part of that is they're preempting the future of regulation. They want to be um, ahead of the curb. I think that's very short-sighted thinking. I think people are going to challenge this regulation. And at the end of the day, right, code is law and code can't be regulated uh, within borders. It lives in cyberspace and that is outside the jurisdiction of any government. So, yeah, I think it will remain to be seen uh, how much that gets respected, of course. Uh, of course, I, I uh, wish we could live in the world of uh, fully, uh, uh, you know, the, the cypherpunk, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, what, oh, some part of that vision. Um, but I think a lot of uh, states around the world will see it like, no, what happens inside this border is inside our jurisdiction. And so as long as you're in this inside this jurisdiction, and, and uh, so that's not me supporting that, obviously, I'm just neutrally speaking about that's that's the uh, the world we're in. So I think we will see that. Um, and I think it'll be interesting, like that argument back and forth about even in the ESG aspect, the mining ESG aspect of it, how much of that is merely communication as opposed to how much of that is actually lobby, as in arguing for regulation in the case of, you know, government creating a cocoon around, let's say, the large players in the industry, which you, you could sort of arguably say is happening uh, with some of the chain surveillance firms that are trying to ingratiate themselves into the government and say, look, look, Mr. Politician or Mr. Regulator, I will help you keep keep the crypto streets clean. That's that's sort of the the message that we're getting um, from these entities. Uh, so, uh, for I guess cl- closing up, then um, if you've got any thoughts for listeners out there, uh, what should they be thinking about from a privacy point of view, and what kinds of things are you looking forward to seeing in the privacy space? Yeah. So, I mean, just to summarize everything we talked about, uh, definitely um, you need to consider, you know, how you're acquiring your Bitcoin, how you're storing it, and then how you're spending it from a privacy standpoint. Um, this isn't to say, like, don't think that you have this, like, KYC Bitcoin and it's it's uh, like a worthless thing because that's not really true. But I do think that it's okay to take those steps and acquire a non-KYC coin. Um, you can start very small. You can start, like, by going to a Bitcoin ATM and, and getting some from there. Uh, you can look up some tutorials and like go through BISC and then try that out. But I say like you need to be very intentional about, you know, how you're buying and storing your Bitcoin, especially in the current environment. Like we can't just say, you know, stack sets and we're going to outhold the government because that's simply not really true. The way that we win uh, with Bitcoin is through creating a circular economy and through buying Bitcoin privately. That's how we can mitigate a lot of this uh, regulatory risk. All right, so Lily, where can um, anyone who wants to find you online, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm very active on Twitter. You can find me at Markets by Lily is my handle. Uh, if you need anything, DM me. My DMs are always open. Happy to send anyone like any resources or, or tips on, on Bitcoin privacy. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Lily. Thanks, Stefan. If you know someone who would benefit from hearing about Bitcoin privacy techniques, make sure you share this episode with them. And the show notes are available at stefanlevera.com slash 358. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels.